if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today we've got a guest that I asked when he was in Australia to come on the podcast and talk to us about horse welfare, which of course you know that's dear to my heart. We've got Dr. Rolly Owens from World Horse Welfare, and he's come to talk to us today about a few different things, just to touch a bit of a broad overview, and then we'd like to get him back to talk about more specialist areas to do with the World Horse Welfare. If you don't know about World Horse Welfare, if you think about it, it's a charity that works to improve the lives of horses and the horse-human partnership in all of its guises. Rolly, are you there? How are you? Good morning, Glenis, um, or good evening to you. I, I'm, I am here and delighted to speak to you, and thanks so much for the invitation. Oh, anything, I think, to get your message out. Okay, you did talk to us about a few other things when you are in Australia, but um, I think we're, you know, this is a bit of an introduction, so I'd like to introduce you. But before we get started, I just want to remind people about International Horse College because the podcast is brought to you by International Horse College and the mission of International Horse College is to improve the welfare of horses around the world through the safe education of their riders, handlers and trainers. Have a look at the wide variety of horse courses now at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, Rolly, just so we can get to know you a little bit more, we've sort of introduced you as the Chief Executive of World Horse Welfare, but just to, so we get to know you a little bit more, do you have a favourite quote, something that maybe inspired you or something that you talk to people about? You know, you find yourself repeating again and again. Oh, I could choose so many, but I think the one I love is the Arabian proverb that the, the breath of heaven is that which flows between a horse's ears. Yes. I think there's nothing as inspiring as being on 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 horseback, especially out in the countryside, you know, and you, you, you're on a, looking out over a plain and between the horse's ears. And it's just such a, it's, well, it's so true. And I believe it so passionately, but um, it's, it, it is inspiring because for me, horses have always been inspiring. And I just, and I, that sort of encapsulates it. Mm. And I think for those of us that have been touched by it, we know exactly what you mean and the rest of the world thinks that we're crazy to a certain extent, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. Yeah. Now, look, we do want to talk about World Horse Welfare and I think you, you know, you joined in 2008, but it goes back a lot further than 2008, didn't it? Can you tell us a bit about World Horse Welfare, how it came about and... um, you know, I mean, I've talked talked a little bit, but I'm sure you've got a better story than me. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I mean, I, I love talking about the story of World Horse Welfare. It, we were founded in 1927 by Ada Cole, who witnessed British workhorses who had served all their lives on the land uh, at the farms of, of England, Wales and Scotland, and they were being exported for slaughter on the continent to France and to Belgium. 
And she witnessed that originally, actually, in 1912, and that's when she first got inspired. And had it not been for the First World War, the charity World Horse Welfare would have been founded around that time. But obviously, horses then were redeployed very much into the, the horrific carnage of the First World War. And it was only when the trade started up again in the in the 20s that she was inspired again to uh, take up the cause. And what was I've always found so wonderful about the charity is the fact that at the heart of it is a very pragmatic but compassionate attitude and that's what Ada was all about her issue wasn't people eating horse meat she didn't eat horse meat and she would never intend to do so but her issue was the conditions in which those animals were transported and it was the welfare of those horses in their lifetime that had to be our primary concern and so she actually campaigned to have a abattoir established in England so the horses wouldn't have to travel on this horrific journey and be slaughtered in such horrific conditions and that that pragmatism but that caring pragmatism is something that is very much at the heart of the charity today because in a world of the 21st century, I don't think there's, it's ever been a more important time to have a, a caring but pragmatic voice standing mm -hmm. and speaking for horse welfare. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm thinking to do with horse welfare, we've got the staff there. And you're a vet, aren't you? You're a vet. That's right. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. So you've come in very well qualified you know, besides being a rider, to be there as a veterinary surgeon. The other people that work, not the volunteers, because I'm sure you've got lots of volunteers, lots of patrons, trustees, people coming for work experience, but the actual staff that look after the main part, you know, because we talk about careers with horses and I think careers with horses are widening up to a much wider degree. It used to be oh, you like horses, you should be a vet. And you were probably told that when you were young, but um, there's lots of other work with horses and in the horse industry. So can you tell us a bit about some of the other staff at World Horse Welfare? Yes, certainly. I mean, as you say, I mean, the horse sector, the equine sector is mm. such a large one and there are so many ways to be involved. Um, clearly, the, the majority, a big part of what we do is rescue and rehoming in the UK. Yep. And therefore, we have a lot of the team who are involved in direct care of the 400 at the moment. Normally, we have 300, but it's a sign of the times. We have 400 horses in our care in the four centres we have. So we take in horses that have suffered abuse and neglect. We rehabilitate them and then we will rehome them. And so a significant proportion of our staff are involved in the care of the horses, the maintenance of our four centres. And that, so you could view that as very traditional, sort of uh, very important, but very traditional sort of involvement as grooms, as managers, um, and all the allied professionals that go in with that, um, that rehabilitation work. But then we also have a growing element of our work internationally in low and middle income countries where equines are still used as working animals. And there, in normal times, we have community-based projects working with working equine owners whose those animals is their, their, the means for their very livelihood. Um, and so we are working with them, with local providers, farriers and saddlers, um, and also with the local veterinary services as well. So that that's a, um, a growing area of our work. 
And then the third area of our operational work is our work around education and advocacy. So the biggest reason for uh, horse welfare neglect around the world is ignorance. And therefore, we need to do it. Obviously, very much ties in with what you're doing there in Brisbane is, mm-hmm. you know, education is such an important part of the equation to support and enhance equine welfare. But also we recognise as part of our work is advocacy. We need to change what policymakers, we need to change the laws because in countries across the world. Because if you can do that, rather than helping the ones and the tens, which we can do directly through, for example, our centre or our community-based projects, internationally, if you change policy, you change attitudes and you change laws, which are then enforced, yep. you're impacting millions of horses. And so, you know, the involvement and the type of skill sets and backgrounds of people who work for World Horse Welfare, before I even talk about the sort of the core competencies of fundraising and finance and human resources and everything else, mm-hmm. um, is considerable. Okay. Now, just a word you said back there was equines. When you say equines, we're just talking horses or we're going a bit wider than horses so we are going wider than horses so despite our name of world horse welfare our charitable objectives are around um the protection and enhancement of welfare of equine so we're talking horses donkeys and mules okay okay now for someone we talked about the staff someone who would like to work in the horse industry work within world horse welfare i'm sure when you interview people you come across people everyone wants to work everyone wants to help out they start off as a volunteer and then everyone wants a job but what sort of core skills and character traits are you looking for if you're going to employ someone have them on staff as opposed to a volunteer I suppose it's a good question. I mean, the reality is it very much depends on the role mm-hmm. because for some roles, as bizarre as it might sound, actually having an equine background is not required. Um, I'm thinking especially of, of you know, of the, the support skills of fundraising and finance, for example, but also in our international team, the focus there is very much on community development, is very much on the people. Mm-hmm. And so the background in equine care and equine understanding is not so important. Clearly, if you're working on our centres and our farms where th- there is frontline care of the animals, then that equine background is important. But I think the two major requirements is to have a an empathy, have a, an understanding and a support of what the charity is seeking to achieve. And when we talk about that, that at the beginning, I talked about the pragmatism of the charity. Mm-hmm. And that can be quite difficult because, for example, we can't save every horse. And therefore, euthanasia, certainly on our farms, is something that we need to be very mindful of and, and understand that euthanasia can be the right welfare choice for, for some horses. And that's sometimes, we, we don't run a sanctuary. Um, and that, so we don't believe in horses just r- running in pastures and uh, because we're, we're very much focused around quality of life. Mm-hmm. 
rather than quantity of life. Yes. So that can be quite a difficult challenge to understand. So people, whatever their role, whether they're on the front line of the equine care or not, they need to understand the ethos of the charity, how caring but pragmatic it is. And of course, and it's somewhat corny to say, but you know, we are a team, we are a family, and it, it's close-knit. And especially going through times like now that we're experiencing in the first quarter of 2020 um, it is so important that we can work as a team and work together um, and of course at times people work on their own and they need to sort of um, get on and, and do their own individual jobs but the vast majority of the time it is not lone working it's not solo working it's team working and that and that is that some people uh, are happier with that than others. And so they, people need to be happy with that and join a team. And what do they say is the best thing about working for World Horse Welfare? God, that's a good question. You're probably <laughs> asking the wrong person, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Nice I should say, <laughs> what do you think is the best thing about working for World Horse Welfare? I think it's the... It's the passion of the charity and what we stand here to do. I mean, we're doing something in many regards, something that we believe very strongly personally and, you know, to, to support and enhance equine welfare. And many, not all, as I've said, um, have an equine background and therefore you're sort of um, doing something in your work time that you, you you would want love to do in your in your own time, you know, just having an association and working with horses. Yep. Um, I think that pragmatism and that c compassion which are the sort of two of the core values of the organization i think people really appreciate and enjoy and are enthused by that um and the fact that we do live in we work in a place where you know not all are outcomes are happy ones mm -hmm. but there are lots of happy outcomes and therefore it's really good to be able to celebrate those successes those animals that came into us um which were almost at death's door and we rehabilitate them and find them loving new homes it's stories like those good news stories which are so important at times like at the moment that really do inspire people yeah yeah stop i need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification that is that the latest version of the book 101 careers in the horse industry is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Okay, and you said earlier, you know, we're talking about the first quarter of 2020, so because podcasts are very good, because we do have people going back, you know, discovering our podcast, going back, listening to all the previous ones because we're not really dated but we are going to date this and just let us know what changes there's been with this worldwide pandemic of COVID-19 how it's changed your work and 
anything that you do that's different? I noticed that your shop's closed. Anything else? Yes. Tell us a little bit about how it's affected what you do. Uh, well, it has been just like for so many organisations and so many people, it's been transformational. The last couple of weeks have been extraordinary, um, unprecedented in all of these terms we hear so, so so much. And it's exactly the same for World Tours Welfare. As you say, our centres are closed. Tragically, our rehoming scheme has closed. We um, rescue and rehabilitate. And the way we can free up space in our centres is by rehoming horses. And we've got over two, well, nearly 2,000 out in homes around the UK. Although we're still taking online applications, obviously people can't come into our centres and we can't uh, rehome horses from our centres for the moment. Our field officers in the UK can, are only answering emergency calls and therefore we're, we're not out. Um, and the reality is we receive calls from the members of the general public to highlight sort of potential welfare concerns. And of course, we're not getting hardly any telephone calls around welfare because people are staying at home and mm -hmm. aren't out yes. and about um, and of course from our international projects there that's been profound as well because you know we work in places in lots of places across Central America and South Africa uh, actually we work in China obviously haven't been there recently um, and out in uh, Southeast Asia too so all areas where either they've had uh, really bad sort of outcomes or sort of restrictions around the pandemic or are just starting to go through that. So, and of course, we, we, I mentioned earlier, we do a lot of advocacy work. And so we're always looking to, to enhance um, horse welfare policy, equine welfare policy and legislation. But of course, the priorities of governments understandably at the moment are very much focused on trying to control uh, the pandemic and, and, and get us through this um, extraordinary, horrific times. Mm, mm, mm. All right. So when the pandemic's over, you know, and you go back to the rehoming, tell us what happens if someone wants to rehome a horse. What type of person would they be? What are you looking for? Because I'm sure you're not going to just give out horses to anyone who comes in. Um, just tell us a little bit about and what expectations you would have of the new owner? Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, at the moment, we're only rehoming in the UK. So it's it's not something that uh, directly uh, would work if you're living in Australia. But there are many charities in Australia which do a, a similar role. But we are looking for someone who's got the time and the ability to give a horse a second chance in life. Those type of horses vary considerably. So we are taking in a lot of mares in foal or with foals at foot. So we have a lot of youngsters. And so it could be someone who's got the time to handle a youngster, uh, bring it on, and if if appropriate, uh, back, him, back them as well. Um, but if they don't want to do that, they can come back into us and we will do that. We have, a, at the other end of the scale, we have a number of horses which for whatever reason, through poor breeding or through the, um, the what they've had to live through during their lives to date, they're unable to be ridden. So they are companion animals. Um, and so obviously that, that they still need care, but a different type of care to one which is being ridden. And obviously in the middle, we have a lot of horses that we rehome as light hacks, 
um, to people who just want to enjoy them for a chance to get out into the countryside and, and go for a ride. We do have some that have joined the police, that have joined the riding disabled, have joined the army, uh, been on ceremonial duty for, you know, the uh, um, William and Kate's wedding and the Queen Mother's funeral. So we do have some that have gone on to sort of great things. Actually, in the past, we had one horse that went to the World Equestrian Games yeah. uh, as a full thing horse. So you know, there's all sorts. But obviously, what we're primarily looking for is someone who's got the the time and and the care to be able to give a horse a second chance in life. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about case studies, but you sort of already told us a few. Is there been one that you've been personally involved with that you think you know this was a really good you know standout for you something that's major I mean particularly proud anyway having a horse competing at the World Equestrian Games and police horses and riding for disabled there's lots of lots of um, things you'd be proud of but anything in particular or is there anything more recent that that you've come across? We did come across just before Christmas and I think it was Three years ago, might have mm-hmm. been a bit longer. So years merge into one. But um, yes. was we took in a, a a young cult called uh, Rudolph, which we named Rudolph, and it was just, not surprisingly, it was just yeah. before Christmas. Yes, and he only had one eye, mm-hmm. um, and he was in a terrible state. And um, we obviously used him because he uh, we used him as our our face of our Christmas sort of message. The fact mm-hmm. that you know even at times like this, people's support can help us uh, turn a life around like Rudolph's. And it was it was just given the time of the year and and given the the role he played for us because you know obviously from a you know we need to get that message out there and we need yeah. to tell that message through case studies. Mm-hmm. And Rudolph was a very special one because it was a very unusual yes. <laughs> for us recently. Yeah. It was a very yeah. cold winter. Yes. And it was um it was obviously Christmas time, which obviously always brings that sort of added sort of uh, element of emotion to. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um and as you say, sometimes it's ignorance. Sometimes it's people thinking that they're doing the right thing, but it not necessarily is the right thing. So have you got something that you'd you'd say is a fairly common thing that people think that they're doing it right, but they're actually not doing it right that you'd like to get out there? Oh, in terms of educational challenges, and if we look across, and we're especially looking a lot across the more equine developed nations so australia new zealand the us uh, many parts of europe i think the biggest welfare challenge is obesity it's horses okay. being yes. overweight yes. and that is a huge challenge we, we, everyone understands uh, or a lot of people understand the health implications for human obesity mm. but the reality is the health implications for equines is far more significant and we've created a disease called equine metabolic syndrome through the way we've managed them. And it's really difficult to get that message across because people feel they're doing the right thing. But the the saying killing uh, their horses with kindness is it couldn't be nearer to the truth because that's what people are doing when they're allowing their horses to get overweight and then obese. They're over-rugging them, they're over-feeding them, they're under-exercising them. And actually it's it's those messages that we need to get out that people need to really recognise that, you know, horses are horses and we really need, in the way we manage them, recognise 
where they've come from from an evolutionary point of view. The fact that they would graze, they would be on the plains in herds grazing for 17 hours a day. And that kind of background and thinking we need to really sort of um, implement into our day-to-day management of the horses. Um, and as I say, you know, the health implications through laminitis, through EMS, through uh, obviously joint problems and so many other issues that come as a result of obesity is a huge challenge and one which is quite difficult to get across because it's not someone being cruel, it's someone thinking they're doing the right thing when they absolutely are not. Yeah, yeah. Now thinking about, you know, you said that's a challenge, but thinking of the charity and particularly in the early stages, to get that charity going. And let's say money aside, because that's always a problem. What do you think the biggest problem was to um, for Ava when she was getting this charity going, you know, getting the movement going and getting people to recognise that there was a problem there? Like, I mean, she was, was that- female. She was female, and this is sort of, you know, going back, how long's the charity been there? 90 years, is it? Like nearly yeah. 100 years ago, a female in the UK. Tell us about some of the problems that she might have had. Or have you got any stories about, I don't know, male people who are taking horses across Europe, male, you know, people driving? Yeah. Do- yeah. Yeah. Just tell us a little the, bit about that. The reality is, if you look at any, the history of most. Um, animal welfare charities, especially in the UK, they have been founded by very headstrong, very driven uh, females. So I'm thinking of the RSPCA and the Brook Hospital for Animals and Sparna and World Horse Welfare um, and, and many, many others, and more recently the Donkey Sanctuary. They've all been set up by women who had a huge passion um, and weren't going to say no for an answer type of people. And so, yes, I, in the 1920s, obviously, it was very much the suffragette's time. And, you know, the world was a very different place then. Mm-hmm. But I don't ever get an impression from reading the history books that actually sexism or being a female was a hindrance. Okay. And I'm fairly sure that Ada would have used it to her advantage so I think um, that would have been sort of an added sort of red rag to a bull type thing, you know, uh, to drive her on. But I think the biggest challenge then is our Animal Welfare Act dates back from 1911. And so the concept of animal welfare is still relatively new in the 1920s. And obviously animal sentience, as we now know, didn't come along till much later. So I think one of the biggest challenges was getting an understanding that just because an animal's an animal, it shouldn't be treated in a compassionate and caring way. And I think people would view, as some still do tragically today, view animals, view horses as like white goods, something Mm. that you could turn on and turn off or just use and then throw out. And I think that would have been a real challenge to get people to understand saying this is wrong when you think, well, why is it wrong? I mean, that's, that's the way we use horses. That's fine. Well, clearly it's not fine and it wasn't fine then any more than it is now. But I think that mindset was a huge challenge. Okay. Okay. Now, moving forward, and I know that we've got a big problem now that you've probably got plans on hold, but what are the plans? What are you working on? What projects were you working on? 
So a number of different projects. We were founded, as I mentioned earlier, around transport and slaughter and, yes. as an issue. And we're still very much focused around that. There is still a trade. There was a trade um, up until recently, and it will no doubt restart uh, the long distance transport of horses to slaughter across Europe. And so we recognise across the world people that horse meat is still consumed in many, many different countries. And therefore, it is so important that the care of those horses during their lifetime is is protected, is 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 prioritised. And therefore, within Europe and increasingly in North America, but also in places like China, that remains very much a focus. And for Europe, we want to, we've set ourselves a target to end the long distance transport of horses to slaughter within Europe by our centenary, by 2027. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that that's a key focus for us. We are in the UK, but also this, because so much of it is digitally driven, we are looking to significantly enhance our educational outreach. We see there's so much wonderful education out there. Uh, so we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, but we are trying to bring that practical approach, those the, the, the day-to-day management skills to to people so that they can understand. And, and a great example of that, we got a, a video online of how to take your horse's temperature, pulse and respiration, mm-hmm. which is sort of a basic way of maintaining and mo- monitoring our horse's health. Um, and that has been hugely popular. So I think we're looking to do that. But also we recognise that, as I said earlier, the challenges for education are as relevant to Guatemala as they are to England or anywhere else. And therefore, you know, trying to make that uh, an international message yep. and obviously translate those um, those messages as far as we can. And then something um, that I was obviously down in Australia recently with talking about is the future of horse sport, which obviously has its own challenges right now. But we're, we're living in a very changing society um, and therefore, horse sport has got to recognise that and reflect on how it needs to change for a long term future. And a concept known as a social licence, you know, for horse sport to, to flourish in the future, it needs to maintain and enhance its social licence. And we as uh, welfare advisors, the International Equestrian Federation and various racing jurisdictions believe that, that is a, a huge priority uh, when life returns to normal later in the year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And I think if people would like to have a look at any of that, you know, because the the website, worldhorsewelfare.org, there is quite a lot. You know, it's quite a big website. There's quite a few pages and there's a lot of advice and videos and news and articles and things like that. And good news stories too, you know, which yes. is always <laughs> nice to read, isn't it? So, Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Rolly, thank you so much for coming on. It's been, yeah, very good to talk to you, to hear in a bit more depth and to spread the word, I think, you know, about World Horse Welfare and, you know, the good work that you're doing around the globe and, you know, how people can support you. And just, you know, just that one signature, just that small donation, just that little bit, you know, I'm I'm sure that it all helps and I think if the horse world sort of pulls together to support you, then you'll be able to go onwards and upwards and uh, continue to do the wonderful work that you do. So thank you. Glennis, thank you. You're so right. Every Literally every bit does help. So mm-hmm. whatever people can do to support, even if it's just spreading the word, yep. um, then we, it, 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 all, it really does make a difference. Brilliant. 
All right. Well, um, let's hope that this COVID-19 pandemic is over soon so that people can continue to support you and you can keep going uh, a little bit quicker without things like that to slow us down. Thank Glenis, you. thank you so much. It's been lovely to chat to you. Lovely to chat to you too, Rolly. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.